Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers, interview people from all different disciplines to tease out the habits, routines, favorite books, etc. that you can use. My guest today is a madman, Dustin Yellen. And you may not have heard this name, but by the end of this conversation, you'll definitely look him up. Dustin Yellen, Y-E-L-L-I-N, on Instagram, at Dustin Yellen, is an artist who lives in Brooklyn, New York, and is the founder and director of Pioneer Works, a multidisciplinary cultural center in Red Hook, Brooklyn, that builds community through the arts and sciences to create an open and inspired world. It's a beautiful, beautiful facility. So if and when you can check it out, I highly recommend. He and his incredible work have been featured by media and organizations worldwide, including the New York Times, Art Forum, Vanity Fair, and TED. Okay, so here we go. The next paragraph will make a lot more sense if you first go to DustinYellen.com and look at psychogeography or Google Dustin Yellen psychogeography and look at the images. That all having been said, drawing on both modernism and the sacred tradition of hinterglass painting, Yellen primarily works through a unique form of three-dimensional photo montage in which paint and images clipped from various print media are embedded within laminated glass sheets to form grand pictographic allegories, which Dustin calls frozen cinema. But wait, there's more. These totemic and kaleidoscopic works often plumb the history and fate of human consciousness within the Anthropocene. Again, that might not sound like it makes any sense, but it makes a whole lot of sense if you look for Dustin Yellen psychogeography. And we will do our best to also include a photograph of one of those at tim.blog if you just search his name. Dustin's art has been exhibited at or with the Amore Pacific Museum. I'm going to mispronounce a bunch of stuff here. Could be Amore Pacific, A-M-O-R-E, Museum, Brooklyn Museum, City Museum, Collection, Collection Solo, Corning Museum of Glass, the Kennedy Center, Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, Museo del Palacio de Bellas Artes, Bellas Artes, I'm not sure, SCAD, or SCAD Museum of Art, Tacoma Museum, and Creative Time, among many others. He holds an honorary Doctor of Humane Letters degree from the Savannah College of Art and Design. You can find him, again, on Instagram, at Dustin Yellen, or at DustinYellen.com, Y-E-L-L-I-N, and also at PioneerWorks.org. Please enjoy this incredible ride, this roller coaster through the mind and psyche and life of Dustin Yetlin. This episode is brought to you by Zero. Z-E-R-O, the world's most popular fasting app. Long-term listeners will know that I take fasting very seriously. I've studied it. I've practiced it. I do three-day fasts. I do seven to 10-day fasts every year, and I take it super seriously. The science, I think, is in. There is increasingly more and more literature pointing out the many benefits of doing even short periods of fasting. And now, zero is helping millions of users around the world unlock healthier, longer lives by harnessing the power of fasting. It's been downloaded millions of times, like I mentioned, 4.9 out of 5 stars on the Apple App Store, as an example, with more than 200,000 ratings, probably more than 300,000 ratings at this point. And up to this point in time for me, for years, when I've had questions, for instance, do artificial sweeteners count? Can I consume those even though perhaps they might spike insulin levels a little bit? What about heavy cream in coffee? If I remain ketogenic and I'm not adding any glucose to my 
diet, so to speak, is that okay? What about the difference between, say, a 16-hour fast versus 72-hour versus seven-day? What do we actually know? How much of this is just old wives' tales versus real science that we can point to? I would always call or text or email Dr. Peter Atita. Peter Atia, my friend, he's been on the podcast many times, and he is now Zero's chief medical officer. So he has an entire library of Q&As and questions and advice, all the kind of stuff that I couldn't give anyone else access to, people now have access to, which is incredible. So Kevin Rose, my buddy, created this app initially in 2016, and it's turned into an incredible community and an incredible collection of how-to and tracking capabilities. So whether you've been fasting for years or just getting started, Zero equips you with exclusive videos from people like Peter Atia, personalized fasting plans, and advanced health data to keep you on track. Listeners of this podcast, that's you guys, can get 30% off a one-year Zero Plus subscription, which gets you all sorts of goodies. So I would highly recommend checking it out. Get a full year's access to content and fasting plans developed by the medical experts I trust, like Dr. Peter Atia, and save $20. Just visit zerofasting.com slash Tim to get your exclusive discount. That's zerofasting.com slash Tim, and your discount will be automatically applied one last time, zerofasting.com slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. I've been using ExpressVPN since the summer of 2019. It is a super simple and reliable way to make sure that my data are secure and encrypted without slowing my internet speed. So for instance, I use public Wi-Fi all over the place, might be at a Starbucks, it could be at a restaurant sitting outside somewhere to work, I travel all the time, and ExpressVPN is an easy way to make sure that I am not getting my packets and data sniffed and <laughs> viewed by other people. All you need to do is download the ExpressVPN app on your computer or smartphone and then use the internet as you normally would. You click one button in the ExpressVPN app to secure 100% of your network data. Of the many VPN solutions out there, ExpressVPN is one of the best on the market. It's super easy, super simple, and I use it personally. In addition to protecting your data, you can also use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. So you can unlock content. This is actually a very, very good use case and uh, super helpful. ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries. So just think about all the Netflix libraries that you could go through. If you love anime, use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix, for instance, and be spirited away. One of my favorite movies, by the way, spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service, Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD with no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all of your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and so on, so you can watch what you want on the go or on a big screen wherever you happen to be. So consider protecting yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tim and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Tim. One more time, check out expressvpn.com slash Tim to learn more. Optimal. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. 
I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now it is seen an appropriate time. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. Dustin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to be here. You are one of my favorite madmen. I've been following ever since we first met at Pioneer Works and was blown away by your art, blown away by your storytelling. I remember this family going with my crazy Bulgarian assistant slash director of editorial with you on a little tour of your studio. And it seemed like your life story was just the most incredible eclectic mix of things. And I thought we would start, and we're going to go down all sorts of roads, but let's start with you dropping out of high school and my understanding is that you end up hitchhiking around New Zealand. And I was curious how that came to be. Well, I actually don't remember. I, I was in Colorado. I had dropped out of high school. I, 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 for some reason, couldn't connect to the system of education. And, and I, I just wanted out. So I tried to persevere. And then I left. And uh, I turned 18. And I had, had, had a bet with my mom where uh, if I didn't do any drugs or alcohol or smoke cigarettes or anything until I was 18, I would win this bet. And uh, it was, she was going to give me a car, basically. But when I was 16, I, I hustled 
swatch watches actually and i made some money on my own and bought my own car so when i turned 18 i said look i won the bet but i already have a car that i paid for with my own money so you you know you're gonna have to give me some cash which i then spent on drugs sex and rock and roll and just went bananas (laughs) and started doing copious (laughs) amounts of hallucinogens at a very at 18 which is maybe good because a lot of these kids you know don't know what they're doing and, and they're 12 so so it was cool and and then I just decided to get out of Colorado, kind of picked a map and went to New Zealand and just started hitchhiking and through Australia, uh, hitchhiking as well. And I hadn't been very cultured as a kid. And so I was like a late bloomer. And at 18, here I am on LSD for the first time listening to Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and having my own sort of Woodstock in my my mind as I'm hitchhiking through these countries and it was pretty crazy and and getting exposed to all this weird stuff through people I met on the road and then I ended up in Thailand on an island on lots of mushrooms they put them in your omelets and I was like this is (laughs) paradise I'll never leave why would I ever go back to what I knew before I'm just gonna live on this island and then that kind of at some point scared me because I was, I was like, whoa, I'm so detached from what I once knew. And then I went back to Colorado and met that crazy physicist. And- <laughs> so we, we're <laughs> we going to get to the crazy physicist. I want to leave that just as a cliffhanger for folks for a second. Let's go back to the swatch watches for a minute. And doing homework for this, it seems like you had the hustle from a very young age. And I read that you used to busk as a break dancer. I don't know if it was on the Venice boardwalk or somewhere, but as a little kid, you'd take this boombox out and flash forward. You're, I mean, honestly, your, your bio is just hilariously fascinating and almost unbelievable to me. At some point later, 30 years later, you end up somehow breakdancing in Jay-Z's 2013 Picasso baby video. I, I mean, I, it's hard for me to even connect these, but where does the hustle come from? The entrepreneurial hustle that I think has served you well in a whole lot of different areas. You know, I, I don't know where it comes from. I think perhaps it was always there. I have no idea. I guess it's in my DNA. I don't know. Do your parents or any siblings have similar programming? That type of entrepreneurial, yeah, I think make both, something from nothing. Both my parents have a bit of that, and I've had it. I guess I mean, and and you know, my ma left my pa when I was five, and took me to Telluride, Colorado, and she's a single mom at that point, always on the road, working and hustling herself. So I kind of raised myself <laughs> since I was five. It feels like, <laughs> and so. There was a lot of just having to figure it out, whatever mm-hmm. it may be, I think. Was your mom supportive of your various, I don't want to call them schemes, but the various money-making operations from, it seems like, a really early age? Did yeah. she know about them? Yeah. My, yeah. My mom was always very supportive. She was very n- not around, I think, in, in my youth, but also very supportive of my whatever it may be, you know? I think everyone got a little bit more nervous when I kind of dropped out of high school. And then when I turned 18 and, and got pretty, pretty wild. In, and, and, then they, and then, of course, I think my father was completely horrified and my mother was just praying I would get through it. So let's segue back to physicists 
Mm. So how do you meet this physicist and who is this person? You know, it's very unusual circumstances. I returned from Thailand to Colorado and uh, this woman that I was very fond of and dated uh, introduced me to, or she started telling me about this physicist and that he was brilliant and that he was working on environmental sciences and the damage from the Gulf War and and was trying to make free energy like Nikola Tesla. And of course, I didn't know who Nikola Tesla was at the time, so I'm now learning who that is and, and that he worked with Buckminster Fuller and I didn't know who that was and started learning about Bucky Fuller. And so again, getting introduced to all this new stuff and I told her I wanted to meet him and I met him and you know, he was maybe the first adult to turn me on to cultural lighthouses like Pablo Neruda or Dostoevsky or, you know, Tesla, all these different things and reading and music and kind of just teaching me. And I was obsessed. So I asked him if I could study with him and he kind of tried to discourage me not to because he said that that would be dangerous because the government you know was watching him because he was trying to make free energy so he was he was really really out there and also really really brilliant and that made me really really interested to learn from him he he finally accepted me to learn from him and we would have just conversations and 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 do mushrooms and LSD together and just have these long conversations and then he Basically, he was like putting me into a closet on a saline solution bed with a quartz crystal on my chest listening to whales. And he was like, look, you're going to think I killed you. You're going to think you're dead. You're going to think I'm a pathological murderer and that I've killed you. Don't you worry, it'll pass. And he would inject me with ketamine. (laughs) <laughs> and I didn't know so this is straight up altered states yeah. <laughs> at this point. it was a great movie and kind of got messed up the second half because it got sort of obsessed with primordial regression opposed to progression but William Hurt did a great job in that picture um, and that was I guess loosely based on John Lilly's life and, and John, right. knew the, John knew the scientist that I was working with and, and I'm having like so I'm having these crazy out of body experiences where I'm leaving my body uh, in this sort of, you know, pure consciousness state and I'm becoming one cell in my arm and then I'm one star and then I'm, I'm, you know, fractalized into billions of little pieces recombobulating. And then the more I would do it, I could navigate through what I guess I perceived to be consciousness and I had all these crazy visions, which I felt like kind of is what sent me to New York. How so? How did those send you to New York? Well, you know, this like blew my mind because I'm making these crazy paintings. I'm making art constantly at this point. When did that start? Sorry to interrupt, but when did the artwork start? Well, I mean, I always made weird shit, but I never really thought about it as anything. (laughs) You know, I would make little drawings or I'd make things out of rocks and sticks and things I found in the, in the forest, which I actually, I have been doing all week this week. So nothing's really changed in, in a long time. Um, 
so I guess I was always doing that. But by the time I was 17 or so, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make art. And I didn't really know about art history yet. I mean, I might have known who Andy Warhol is or Picasso or Matisse, but I really knew nothing. And But art felt like the greatest freedom because it felt like something you could it was completely free. You could invent whatever, and you were never limited to the thing you invented because you could go and invent something else. And then after I met the physicist, I became obsessed with the sciences because I was like, holy shit, this whole world is a hallucination. Everything's been invented. Therefore, we can just build some crazy utopic vision of what we think it should look like on this planet. And so the art, the art became almost like the voice and the science became like the tactic or something. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that makes, are you saying the art was sort of the, the inspiration or the muse and the science was the sort of means by which you expressed whatever had been kind of intuited or received by you? Is that what you mean? Yeah. And I think I was really obsessed with clean energy in like the sixties, even though we were in the nineties. I was, you know, getting obsessed with Nikola Tesla and I was getting obsessed with this idea of of that we could make clean and free energy and therefore I felt like the art was almost the bonfire, you know, which you could get people around and if you could get everybody around a fire, then you could start to build these more complex systems which could be scaling clean energy or, you know, various new forms of uh political systems. <laughs> Now, you, you said that some of the visions or experiences when you're in these saline baths, right? So people can imagine if you float in the Dead Sea because of the, the high salt content, it's like half your body is kind of but suspended. I, I wasn't actually in the baths like, like John Lilly. I, w- I was on a saline solution bed in a dark room. So. Oh, I see. All right. That's a lot safer. Okay. Similar <laughs> feeling, but a lot safer, precisely. Yeah. Now, during those experiences, you said that some of what was imparted or experienced led you to New York. How is that? Well, I think I was feeding, if you will, these enormous delusions of grandeur where I'm like, everything is possible. Do you know what I mean? Like, I could do anything. (laughs) And I'm in a small town in Colorado and I'm obsessed now with, you know, I'm like, I'm going to make art. And I'm going to, that's what's going to be my medium is making things out of nothing. And so I basically reduced the idea that the only way to do that was to go to New York City. That's where the artists were, it felt like. You know, that's where, that's where people were. Because I was in a small town and the kids were like drinking beer on the mountainside, talking about hockey. And I was like, I need to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and how did you then find your way or fund your way, both, I guess, at that time to... New York, right? How are you making ends meet? I went there without really knowing anyone or, or anything and found a, uh, you know, and my mom was very generous and she said, look, I'll help you with putting like a very cheap roof over your head and then you need to figure it out. So I went there and found like, I basically rented through, I think it was like Craigslist or, or the Village Voice. I found a, a, a room. It was more like a closet from some dude in Soho. And I lived in this little tiny room and he was very generous and gave me another room to make paintings in. And again, I was young and wild and uh, I was just making these crazy abex. I didn't even know what abex, abstract expressionism probably was at the time, but looking back, I was making these weird abex paintings and renting this little closet room from the sky and out every night like a wild man and somehow talked my way into these 
bars and places. At the time, it was a place called the Bowery Bar and a place called Spy. And I, I don't know. I was very lucky because I met all these amazing people right off the boat, so to speak. That a lot of them are still in my life today. So yeah, I don't know how that happened. I just I met people right away. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, it sounds like you went to the action, and then you sort of entered yourself as one of the lottery balls in that spinning container of a thousand other lottery balls, and bumped into a lot which would be viewed as serendipity, but you kind of engineered it by going to the center of, of the action. What year, roughly, do you recall when you got to New York? 94, I think. 94. All right. And when did you first feel like, and maybe you felt this all along, but from the standpoint of keeping you afloat financially, when was the first inkling that you felt art could do that for you? Well, in my mind coming to New York, I thought, oh, of course, it would be so easy. Once I got to New York, that wasn't the case. And talk about hustle. I mean, I'd be like, buy this painting for me, $2,000, $2,000. No, 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 buy the painting, $1,000, $1,000. <laughs> bucks. buy that painting. I get to eat some food. Come on, you know, I was crazy. And then, and then I'd be like, if someone didn't want the painting, I'd be like, just take it. <laughs> like, just take it. Because I, I thought to myself, well, if they take it and they hang it on their wall, and 20 people see it and 19 of them can't not stand it. But one person likes it and asks about it. And maybe then maybe, you know, it would become a plague. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say a plague? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's like a plague. It's like a disease art. You know, if I could get, you know, really one person, if, if, if we put something in a room and 50 people don't like it, but the 51st person loves it and wants one and they get it and then they do the same thing and the next 50 people don't like it, but one person sees it and they get one over a lot of time that can really, you know, get you going. And that's what I would do. I would just hustle. I was wild. I'd be doing fucking, what do you call them? Like cartwheels and somersaults through the bar. And I had like long hair and beards and beads. And like, I, I you know what I mean? I was, I was out there. I was meeting people who were also teaching me. Like that's where I got my education really was from the people I was meeting. How many pieces of artwork would you guess you gave away for free or close to free? Dozens, hundreds, a handful? What? I don't know. Do multiple dozens. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe mm -hmm. 50, 100. Who knows? I mean, and some of that stuff will like appear nowadays or someone will call me out of the blue and be like, I have this painting from 95. And I'm like, can you fucking burn it? You know, I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> Good on them for holding on to it. Oh, uh, this, no. So, no, so 94, 95, I've thought about, actually, this is from a conversation I had with a friend named Graham Duncan when he was on this podcast. And he talked about swimming in this metaphorical river. And on one hand, you have kind of hyper rigid on one shore, one side, you have this like hyper rigidity, OCD, etc. And on the other side, you have chaos and serendipity and psychosis, right? You have these two extremes and you can swim down the middle, you can swim to either side. And sometimes people get like lodged on one of those shores. This is leading to, to a question about Zelda. I don't know if this question is going to make any sense, but who was Zelda and why did you have to rescue her? Does this question make any sense? If not, I can, well, I can yeah. give <laughs> So I was obsessed with F. Scott Fitzgerald and 
and and then of course Zelda Fitzgerald, and yeah, and and so for some reason I I was having what one could call a, a mild psychotic break, and I had this moment where I thought that everyone knew each other, that everyone was almost playing a joke on each other that they didn't know each other, almost this idea of the seven daughters of Eve where we all came from the same mother, but now there's billions of us. And I, and then I thought everyone was pretending not to know. So I would walk by a restaurant and I would wave at everybody thinking like, Hey everybody. And they would all look at me weird. And (laughs) it was really weird. And I was adding up things. So like, if I saw you, Tim, I'd be like, Tim, uh, T equals 20. Uh, I I is whatever it is, M is 13, and I'd add up your name, and I thought there was this, like, n- numerical meaning. And and I, w- I was filming all this because I had traded a drawing for a little handy cam. I think that's what they were called, the cameras. So I was filming everything by myself, just whatever I was doing. And I had this moment where I was writing all over my paintings. I thought everybody knew each other, and I went on to a boat. There's a great – have you seen the video, the crack up? No, I haven't seen the video. I there's, just read about it. There's this video where I accidentally filmed a psychotic break and I go onto the Forbes boat and I'm like, this is my boat. And the guy's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, this is my <laughs> boat. And I kind of thought like, this is my world. And he was like, what are you talking about? Are you related to the Forbes family? And I was like, yes, directly. F-O-R-B-E-S. <laughs> And he kind of, he listened for a little while and he gave me a tour of the boat until he realized I'm, I was bananas. And then he kicked me off the boat. And then I, this was a, like on Chelsea Piers. And then I walked over to the Chelsea Piers where golf range where they hit the balls, you know? And I literally just in the nighttime by myself filming, walked onto the field and started kicking the golf balls and walked up to the guy driving the vehicle used to pick up the balls and i said to him and i used the wrong (laughs) words because i said i i need to reprimand your vehicle (laughs) (laughs) you were trying to say requisition i guess (laughs) totally the guy was like are you crazy i'm like no no no, you don't understand Uh, i'm having a party on this field and i need this vehicle and so jump on the back and so he literally held the camera, jumped in the back onto the balls. And I started driving and I tried to drive the vehicle out into the outside of this area. And of course he grabbed the keys and brought out the managers and I tried to convince them they weren't having it. And so I left. And then the very next morning I went into Central Park under the same idea that everyone knew each other. And I I never forgot because I I was talking to everyone as if they were family. And I started talking to this guy and having a long conversation in the park. And then if my memory serves me right, he tried to kiss me. And that freaked me out. And I ran. So now I'm like running through the park. And I go to Belvedere Castle. I don't even know if I knew what Belvedere Castle was. But I go to the castle in the park. And I climbed it. And I scaled the castle. And the police came. and. got me down from the castle and they were so nice. They were like, what are you doing up there? And for 15 minutes, the police were really nice. They were like 
trying to, and I was like, I'm, I've got to say, I'm looking for love. And they were trying to understand what love was. I'm like, I, I have, you know, and I was demanding that they opened up this castle because there were classrooms in there to let the kids use the frogs and the dinosaurs and the microscopes. And the, the police and I had a very nice 15 minute conversation where they were really trying to understand my motivations. And finally, after 15 minutes, they were like, you're under arrest. They threw me on the ground. I peed in my pants. They took my book, which was uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald's uh, The Crack Up, which was like a, a book from 1945 published on New Directions of essays that Edmund Wilson, his editor, put together. And they took my book. They put me in Central Park Prison. I'll never forget. They took my shoelaces. Then the ambulance came, took me to a hospital. My my two best friends, who are both no longer with us, came to try to get us out get me out and I wouldn't leave the hospital because I was in this weird narrative that this is where I was supposed to be. And my friends are like, <laughs> we're going. I'm like, no. And literally they're, I'm arguing with my best friends and they were like, get out, let's go. And then for some reason I wouldn't leave. Then another ambulance took me to a full lockdown. I'm writing all over the walls, like my numeric codes. And Finally, you know, it's like the whole thing in the movies with the glass and the little pill cups. And finally, I was like, okay, I'm ready to leave. <laughs> and they were like, you <laughs> cannot leave. <laughs> and then, and I, I was like, no, no, I'm ready to go. They're like, no. And my parents, who had not been on an airplane together in I don't know how long, got to get, flew from the West Coast and they got me out. Whew. It was amazing. So- <laughs> Uh, so, all right. So, amazing is definitely one one word. There, yeah. there are many descriptors well, one you, could you use. Watch the video, the crack up, and then it it makes sense. Uh, well, I'll check out the video. To those listening, I suppose a few, at least, would think to themselves, "Holy fucking god, that is terrifying." Two questions for you. Number one is, was that out of left field psychotic break was it precipitated by something so that's number one and number two is have you ever gone so far to the shore of chaos and psychosis that you've scared yourself Mm, good question uh i don't know what was the cause of this i think i mean one could it was a long time ago so one could point to a surplus of hallucinogens one could just, one could also just say like, oh, well, I was having such a, fin- like, life was so good. It was a dream. And I got so enmeshed into the dream that the dream sort of interconnected us all. And even at the time, I don't think it scared me because I was, I thought it was real. And since then, I mean, sure, I've probably scared myself a few times, but not so bad. I think it's good to shake it up a little. So you've never been worried about losing your tether to this reality and really just ending up in a psych ward for years or decades. You've never had that concern. No. Why is that? No idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, I just never, I was never there. You know how people are manic, manic depressive is something that one can be. One. Yeah say that I'm just manic. (laughs) I see. And it provided a great fertile soil to make work. (laughs) 
Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Wealthfront. Did you know if you missed 10 of the best performing days after the 2008 crisis, you would have missed out on 50%, 50% of your returns? Don't miss out on the best days in the market. Stay invested in a long-term automated investment portfolio. Wealthfront pioneered the automated investing movement, sometimes referred to as robo-advising, and they currently oversee $20 billion of assets for their clients. Wealthfront can help you diversify your portfolio, minimize fees, and lower your taxes. It takes about three minutes to sign up, and then Wealthfront will build you a globally diversified portfolio of ETFs based on your risk appetite and manage it for you at an incredibly low cost. Wealthfront software constantly monitors your portfolio day in and day out so you don't have to. They look for opportunities to rebalance and tax loss harvest to lower the amount of taxes you pay on your investment gains. Their newest service is called Autopilot, and it can monitor any checking account for excess cash to move into savings or an investment account. They've really thought of a ton. They've checked a lot of boxes. Smart investing should not feel like a roller coaster ride. Let the professionals do the work for you. Go to wealthfront.com slash Tim and open a Wealthfront investment account today, and you'll get your first $5,000 managed for free for life. That's wealthfront.com slash Tim. Wealthfront will automate your investments for the long term, and you can get started today at wealthfront.com slash Tim. You told another story, I recall, during this first tour of your studio where I was marveling at your work, which, which people have to look up uh, and certainly visit your Instagram account, uh, which is just at Dustin Yellen. But there's this family, or a mom and dad and their son, and I remember you ended up, we were all standing in a circle at one point, and you're telling this story that completely captivated and mesmerized, I want to say this like 12-year-old boy, and the parents were just not sure what to make of it. And I thought the whole thing was hilarious because you're telling this story about, I want to say LSD and swimming from one place to another, or I can't recall exactly, but does that ring any bell at all? Something involving swimming and hallucinogens? Oh, let me think. <laughs> oh, I mean, and it, if not, it's okay. It's probably one of a hundred stories. Exactly. I just remember more the audience reaction and the facial expressions more than anything else. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I definitely, I've come closest to death swimming once to a bird sanctuary. I was swimming to a bird sanctuary. And then I also in the Bocas in Panama, I was spearfishing for Hamlet's and we were on a beach with a few scientists and I got swept away. I, I was told not to swim. I should have listened. But I don't think I was on any hallucinogens either time. So I don't recall almost drowning because of hallucinogens, but I have definitely almost drowned. <laughs> okay. That's, that's, that's perfectly good as a way of getting to the question, which is how did you develop your abilities as a storyteller or maybe a better question is because that's always a tricky one like what makes a good storyteller right i know you you seem to be a fan of uh, werner herzog there are certainly others but like in, you are a good storyteller in your mind what makes a good storyteller and are there any people who stick out as really good storytellers oh well there's so many i wouldn't even know where to start werner's an amazing storyteller I mean, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Murakami, I wouldn't even know where to start with storytellers. There's so many. But I think perhaps being uh, curious is a great place to start. And trying to be fearless is another place where you just want to inject the entire civilization into your 
neural networks as fast as possible all of the time. So whenever you're conscious, there's more than you could possibly input. I mean, even right now, while I'm speaking to you, I'm looking at a mountain, I'm looking at hundreds, probably thousands of trees. I know that there's a river uh, about 100 yards in front of me in a valley, even though I can't see it. I've been on that river every day looking for rocks. There's just so, you know, the infinite detail in our existence is so vast that if you can be aware of it and process it, then somehow you might be able to describe it. And then that could become a captivating story. And if you put yourself in those places often, it becomes a great medium, I guess. So I'm constantly throwing myself into the depths of the Amazon or Papua New Guinea or Africa or all kinds of weird places always. Like I'm, I'm kind of a bit of an explorer. And then the things you see and the things you experience, you describe. And I think that people are like planets as well. So you could say the same thing for a person, right? And all of their experiences that you could describe if you think about you know any anybody a musician a writer a data scientist i don't know if that answers the question yeah that's kind of secondary if what you say answers the question i think <laughs> if it's important i'll i'll come back to it it's more of a prompt what mm-hmm. i say I'm, I'm just kind of like a you know buzz light you're pulled all that's trying to keep things moving in certain directions or any direction but the observation that you made about sort of the detail of reality makes me think of Aldous Huxley in Doors of Perception talking about the mind as a reducing valve, right? In so much as we're optimized to fight, fornicate, flee, basically. And that on some level, you could imagine hallucinogens allowing, dropping or widening the aperture of your reducing valve so that you're you're seeing Damn. a lot of what is... That's yeah. amazing. You literally just said what I always say. I even said it to to someone this like yesterday. I say it almost every seventy two hours. Which is, if I'm speaking about hallucinogens, I say exactly that. It's literally imagine your aperture is opening up, and therefore more light, more color, more sound is coming in. Have you found anything outside of hallucinogens to help you to widen the aperture so that you can? Absolutely. I mean, when I'm drawing, you know, people have been trying to get me to meditate and I think I've done it, but not in a traditional sense. And and a, a, a lot of folks would say meditation will take you very much to the same place. Nature. I mean, just, you know, I've been out here hiking every day in the river. I think being conscious Take the hallucinogens out of it completely, but somehow just being conscious of of where you are in the world and what you are in the world and the complete incomprehensible mysticism that is inherent in the very fact that you can experience or be conscious of any experience is the same as potentially, you know, in taking in a hallucinogen. For those folks listening, and, and I, I wonder this too, who are saying to themselves, this guy's fascinating, his stories are incredible, and I have no idea whatsoever how he is not self-destructed, like how he has managed his life or had it managed in such a way that he's become a super successful artist. What would you say to them? Is it a, just a miracle that you've had, like you've kind of 
rolled snake eyes a thousand times or is there more to it? Well, I think, I don't know is what I would say. I would say, yes, I've been extraordinarily lucky. Lucky, lucky. Every day I'm like, just don't die. This shit is so good. Don't die. Don't die, motherfucker. Get one more day in there. Um, So (laughs) (laughs) I've been very lucky and I'm very grateful for that. I think I'm also very cautious. You know, I'm not doing lots of hard drugs. I'm not, you know, as I've gotten older, I'm slower to jump in a crazy wild ocean if I don't know that I could actually swim in it or into a river if I think that it's going to take me down. Um, So I've been very lucky, but I also think, yeah, I think you can dive into the infinite complexity of our existence and, and not, and do that by not just rolling snake eyes every time, but by just being open and curious, which is, I think the great way for how people learn is, is by just being curious. I totally agree. And uh, I'm, I'm going to dig a little bit more. Well, I'm going to dig a lot more just because part of what I try to do in these conversations is to tease out the, some people don't like this term, but like the superpowers or idiosyncrasies that allow people to break the normal molds of society and achieve unusual things, right? Which you have done demonstrably, objectively, you have done that. One thing that came up as I was reading were quotes describing you as anti competitive. And I'm wondering if if maybe that's a gingerbread trail worth following and and thinking about. And uh, you know, I'm looking at this quote from a Vanity Fair piece from 2015, and this comes up a few times uh, elsewhere also. But it, it mentions a friend of yours. Is it Tom Rice? I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but a Pulitzer Prize winning amazing Reese. writer. Yeah, you got to meet yeah. Tom. I'd love to meet him. Oh, and he, cool. and his quote is, Dustin loves everyone else's creative egos. He's learned the magic formula, which is that if you're competing with other creative people, you're just depleting your energy and destroying yourself. That's really interesting. Can you comment on that? I don't know if it's accurate, if you consider it accurate, but can you speak to that? Well, sure. I mean, I, I'm obs- I think that, that, that the species is pretty incredible. And I just the way I'm... Uh, inspired by nature constantly. I'm inspired by people and people are part of nature. And so when I fall in love with, well, like Tom's books is a a great example and Tom is is a great example, but you know, you could go just down the list and line of incredible souls making amazing drawings and paintings and movies and records and math problems and all of it. All of that stuff to me is, is fucking amazing incredible, uh, magnetic material that can help propel you through the world. So I just want to get turned on more and more and more to all the cool potential that can be unleashed by uh, certain combinations of, I don't know if it's neural activity or if it's, you know, meta fucking cloud stimulation yeah Yeah. what form if it's the right term does anti-competitiveness take like what does that look like to be anti-competitive in the art world well i think it's to embrace and love your community and to help your community realize their dreams not just your dreams and if you can make your dreams part of dreaming that how do we help 
realize everybody's dreams together in some collective orgy of dreams. Now, is that driven by optimism and idealism? Is it driven in part by just finding that a better way to increase your energy as opposed to deplete it? What, what led you to that? I don't know if there's anything great specific uh, schism that, that led me there, you know, except that sort of corny, silly idea that there's like love and fear. Like we can all love each other or we can all fear each other. And it seems so simple. Like we can all come together and say, look, we're going to figure out how to be stewards to this planet together and create great clean technologies and great responsible ways for eight or 10 billion people to live together. Or we could, you know, create conflict and I guess competition and territorialism. And I, and I feel like the idea of a country, which is kind of arbitrary and new and religions and sort of different ways in which we draw lines around thought and can maybe create ceilings for us. So, but for me, it's a very much, a, I, I would have guessed, a natural, natural state that we should just all love each other and build the world that we want to inhabit because the entire thing is just malleable and sculptable and, you know. I have another quote that I'd love to uh, fact check, see if it's accurate, first of all. But second, just to hear you explain it, if it makes any sense, uh, because it stuck out for me. And that is from a New York Times piece. And the quote is, I don't worry about inspiration as much as system overload. I don't know if you remember saying that, if you did, but what does that mean? I feel that every day, Tim. Oh, <laughs> well, what does that mean? I feel it every fucking day. I feel it right now. Uh, I'll give you an example. I'm making sculptures right now out of rocks, and I love rocks. And I go up the valley, and I go onto a river where there's, I guess, probably millions of little rocks. And as I'm looking for the rocks in the hot sun with my head sort of gaze down at the ground, I say to myself, holy fuck, there are so many rocks. How could I possibly see them all at the same time? And then distinguish which ones will fit together in order to make something out of them. And I could say the same thing about people or places or pretty much anything that there's just so much. If I said to you, I'm just going to read poetry, shit, I'm just going to read Japanese poets for the rest of my life, that in itself would I could spend 100 years doing. Just that right. or just watching French films or just, you know, learning about specific plants. Uh, there's so much to learn and to be exposed to and to remember, if, which, which I have very hard time doing, that constantly I'm in system overload. And so when someone, I, you know, I always get that question, well, what inspires you? You know, like, who, oh, what pain or what that? I'm like, fuck, man, I'm inspired by, by everything. I'm inspired by being conscious right now of the fact that we can have this conversation. That's a fucking miracle. <laughs> and really it is. And then, so, but if you play that out, and you like are kind of trying to till the soil to be aware, or as we said earlier, open our apertures. And the more and more you open your apertures, the more and more you possibly maybe perceive. 
and you know Huxley's a great example, an amazing, amazing brain. Um, then how do you mitigate system overload? And so where my challenges have been, I think, is that I'm always trying to widen that aperture. And then at the same time, I'm like, oh, but I should have some kids. And wouldn't it be nice to like do things that happen in the world that maybe require a little closing of the aperture or something or something to focus? Because it feels like just this endless, infinite, awesome sea of possibility that is always where you are. What have you found to help, if anything, with system overload? Because for you as someone who feels the world deeply and who willingly wants to widen and maintain the the width of your aperture, this is just an ongoing, in a sense, like an onslaught of input. So what do you do? What are what are some of the things that you found to be helpful for preventing complete overwhelm? I like to draw and I like to be in the middle of nowhere and I like to smoke marijuana. No, no I mean, all these things. <laughs> uh, I, like, uh, I like to, uh, those three things I like a lot. Love to make love. Uh, there's a lot of things I think that could help one to, uh, yeah, like somebody got me to meditate on a lake this week. That was pretty cool. Um, swimming can be good, I guess. Oh yeah. Watching, you know, things like I can watch a movie and it puts me in a world, which then makes it so that I'm kind of living that world while watching it. And therefore I'm not thinking about the 10 zillion other possible things I could be watching. You seem to have watched a lot of film. Do you have any favorite films? Or for people who don't know anything about film, if they're like, Dustin, please guide me through the light or the darkness or however you want to do it, <laughs> please, can you make some recommendations? Do you have any any films that come to mind that are films you've recommended a lot or watched over and over again? Yeah, I often recommend a movie called Fitz Corraldo by Werner Herzog. Um, I highly recommend that and many of Werner's movies. Um, there's a great movie that's really funny. I don't know if you've seen this movie, Tim, called Bad Boy Bubby. <laughs> no, I have not. I like the title, though. Australian movie, 1993, I believe. Bad Boy Bubby. That's a cool movie. Another movie called The Color of Pomegranates. By, I can never say his name. Parhajanov. It's a, he's an Armenian director. Um, you know, I love Hal Ashby's being there. He also made Harold and Maude. Um, I mean, Jesus movies, there's, you know, Claude Chabrol is a great French director. Um, uh, you know, obviously Kubrick, uh, watch all of Kubrick's movies and Tarkovsky's movies. Um, and Tarkovsky wrote a great book about filmmaking called sculpting in time. Yeah. Sculpting yeah. in time. Let's grab one of them. So you mentioned Fitz Corraldo first. Why do you recommend that movie to people? What is it about it? And not only that movie, but the, there's a great documentary about the making of the movie called Burden of Dreams. Um, Burden of Blank. Dreams? Yeah, by Les Blank. But, but Fitz Corraldo, I mean, it's just this ultimate metaphor of this human who wants to bring the opera into the depths of the Amazon and the sort of trials and tribulations of what that means. And in the course of the film, 
they to get out of the jungle, they have to carry a boat over a mountain, which I think is just a great metaphor for what it's like to be alive. <laughs> well, it sounds also a lot like <laughs> building pioneer works. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and, can you can you just describe how did Pioneer Works for people who don't have any idea, no visual in their mind of what Pioneer Works is? Maybe you could just tell describe what it is and then describe what it was because I, I've visited in person and it's spectacular, but that is not how things began. Can you describe it for people? What it is now, or yeah, what it is now, and then rewind and talk about what. Well, you can do neither or what what it was and what it is now, or what it is now and what it was. However, you want to approach it. Well, I mean, I think it was just a hallucination and a dream, and its genesis, I think, is no, is no. I don't, I don't think it was like this great idea that I think every kid in every art school probably had similar sentiments of like, why isn't there a place where I can go? where there's writers and scientists and artists and musicians and filmmakers all together in a building, sharing ideas, thinking together and, and dreaming together. Like why wasn't, and I, again, didn't go to high school. I didn't go to college. And so maybe subliminally or sublimely or somehow this was a way for me to incarnate what I wished to be or wished to experience at some point. But but I didn't. I never understood why isn't there a place where just everybody's th- together, trying to think about how we build this world together. So it started very much as is a is just an obvious question, I guess. Like why why doesn't this exist? And when I was younger, you know, I started having you know roommates, and I'd have a loft with lots of people playing music and reading poetry and kind of together. And I sort of had these primitive versions of this naturally. But I guess so. So, what is Pioneer Works now? It's it's an institute with a mission, and I don't know if "institute" is the right wor- word, but its mission is to build community through the arts and sciences to create an open and inspired world. So, what does that mean? I mean, it mean it's basically like how do we use arts and sciences to bring people together to build the world they want to live in? And uh, now it's you know somewhere between a school and a learning center and a museum and a community center and a and I, I don't know what it's, it's uh it's a social experiment that I think could end up being a great model as a learning center. And I don't like to use the word school because it feels like it puts you in something that is old and not necessarily functioning in its current state. So, so I'd say it's a learning center, a cultural center. When I say culture, I have to circle sciences because a lot of folks don't think about science as part of culture. How large is it? my subjective experience was feeling that it was vast when I walked through and walked through again and then had two glasses of wine and walked through again. How big is this space? It's so funny because when I got the building, it was uh, an ironworks built at the end of the Civil War. And I had to beg everybody around me I couldn't afford the building. And I was begging everyone. And collectors were like, look, here's a half a million dollars. You know, get the building and we'll take the art later. Just, I was begging everybody and I almost, it almost didn't happen. And when I first went in the building, I was like, this thing is giant, like you're saying. And, and it's about 27,000 square feet inside and about 20,000 square feet outside of, at its current 
footprint. We're, 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 we're going to be adding some things. And it felt massive. Now it feels absolutely tiny. Now I walk in there, I'm like, fuck, we have no room. We need five more classrooms. We need to triple the size of the tech department. The science area needs to be twice the size. You know, we we need to build recording studios. We have a tiny re- recording studio, but but it's not big enough. We need, you know, we need a place for a democracy and equality uh, program, which is going to require ten people, and narrative arts program, which you know. So every right now, it's it's. Uh, Yes, it it doesn't, you know, we we do about 75 residencies a year where we're giving space for free to scientists and artists and writers, et cetera. Uh, so we need more more place for the residents. So I don't know if that it, it feels tiny. Let's let's go back to as I've read you describe it, uh, the original shithole. <laughs> no windows, no floors, no stairs, no utilities. <laughs> uh, and you're trying to gather millions of dollars. That's a hard pitch. It would seem. And so, what worked? What got the money? What was what was the pitch? What what perseverance was? I know, but you well, can you can persevere and bang your head against the wall with a with a shitty pitch, and it will not work. But it did work. So, what happened, and why did it work? Well, I would say a, a few different things. You know, in the beginning, I was, or for a very long time, even in the beginning. Uh, I was I was just giving away all my money. So if I sold a sculpture, like, and I would beg people, I'd be like, "You want to buy a piece of art? You disgusting capitalist pig! I'm not selling you any art. Help us do this thing. People don't need objects. People need ideas." <laughs> <laughs> how close? So, how close to verbatim was that? I mean, would you actually <laughs> was that the sentiment, or would you actually say that and just endear yourself because you gave zero fucks? Really- no, I'd say it, but sweetly and, and somewhat sardonically. <laughs> um, and, and I believed it. I was like, look, if you could buy a piece of art from me for a couple hundred thousand dollars, well, then you could help us with this bigger dream, which is not about me or my art, but about a lot of people. And and so for years, I did that. I If someone wanted to buy my art, I'd be like, look, I'm glad you like this art, but look at this crazy project we're building and and I gave away everything. I mean, I almost bankrupted my art studio every few months because I was just keeping it going barely. And then, you know, water heaters, stairs, floors, roof repair, whatever it took to get the building inhabitable. So that was like the first stage was just like, can we get this building safe? And I thought that would take a decade. Let me pause for one second. So you said giving stuff away. So that they, you have, on one hand, the well-funded capitalist pigs, as you put it, right? I guess, uh, you know... You they're, know sweet, you, they're, they're good people. I'm no, just I don't fucking mean, around. I, yeah. I'm fucking around. I'm fucking around. Yeah, I mean, the, but, but, you know, but like very wealthy, that. like merchant class, right? Or like merchant ar- aristocracy. Then you have everybody else. Who are you giving your art away to? during that period of time and why are you giving it away? No, 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 I'm not. I'm selling the art to people. But like let's say a collector comes in the studio and this happened. And I'm like, oh, you're giving you mean the proceeds please, of that back to Pioneer please, Yeah. Like please buy this sculpture because we will get water heaters. Yep. I see. I see. Please buy this piece of art and we might get some windows. <laughs> Things like this. <laughs> Uh, got it. And so I would say in the beginning that helped jumpstart the project. 
And then, you know, somebody was like, you need to start a nonprofit. I didn't know what that was and a board of director, you know, and, and I would say at its very best, what Pioneer Works is now and maybe always was and will be is an amalgam of souls. It's a group of people. It's like, you know, Gabriel Florenz, the artistic director, who's, who's you know, like my brother and Jana Levin, who, who I know you know, who's like my sister and, you know, family and like all these incredible people who, you know, you know what I used to say and I used to think of it and I still do is, is Pioneer Works is just a table. It's just a table. And it's like whoever's at the fucking table is, is making it work. I like that. That's really a, a beautiful metaphor and visual. How do you, and, and maybe the answer is somebody else does it, I have no idea, but you strike, well, you don't strike me, you are a manic artist and you love making art. How do you balance that with the managerial responsibilities? Does it drive you fucking nuts to do that kind of stuff? Or is there some way you think about it? How do you integrate that if you do? Well, I would say that a couple of different ways. One, I'm lucky. I mean, the last decade has been really challenging to do both, but I try not to think of it as both. So I think of Pioneer Works as a social sculpture. I just think of it as another artwork. And I think and the way I try to measure some of the success of that artwork is that my obsolescence is my success. So the sooner that I can be obsolete and the thing works really, really well, then I know I've done my job. And here we are a decade later, and I think there's some, some truth where I can kick it and this thing is going to flourish. 36 months ago, that would not have happened. So... I would say that me not being there and it working really well is success. And I think of it as an artwork that's helped me to do it for so long. I will say it's, I'm at a new place with it because we're PW is really working well now and there's incredible brain trust and group involved that it's working. And, and I'd say that I, I, I mean, it wasn't tenable by, by the seventh year in or eighth year in, I mean, I was giving tours five, six, seven tours a day. And, and, you know, people would come to see my art in my studio and I'd be like, let me show you this other thing. And by the time I'd done my fifth tour on a Friday, I'd be like crying. I'd be like, this is where the music studio is and we're going to build the observatory. You know, I was like so <laughs> worn out by like being the showman of like, and this is what we're going to do here. And what we're going to do a a gap year, a post high school and a post college gap year. And then we're going to raise funds to do, do more like kids programs. And then we're going to fucking, we're going to get another, you know, I was like driving my, and I, it, it was, it worked, but it, it got to the point where it was like, I'm going to fucking die. This is not tenable. So what we're, I mean, if, so you're having this dark night of the soul where you're crying about the new art spaces as you're giving a tour, were there any changes that really moved the needle in the right direction for you? Did you, or did you just take a break from it all for a period of time to like get your head screwed on? What did you do? The key, the key, the key is the people. And so our incredible board of directors and advisors and staff it's all on them. Do you know what I mean? I'm just yeah. another little cop in the wheel or whatever. So, you know, I, again, I have to take my hat off to Gabriel and to Jana and to, to Tommy and who's our director of technology and to just so Tiffany. And like, there's just so many people 
over the years, some that are still there, some that aren't there. Daniel Kentar, who's our incredible director of design, who's so talented. I, I, it's really just the people. And that's the whole thing. The idea is great too, but it's the people. And maybe those things combobulate because, you know, if you bring a musician on, and I've, this happened so many times where friends of mine who play music, they, they would come there for the first time or I'd be meeting a musician and showing them around. And they'd be like, holy fuck, this is, this is like, I've dreamed my whole life of a place like this. I cannot believe it exists. How can I be part of this? How can I help? I want a seat at the table. And so, you know, the way they say like-minded people attract each other, the fact that all of these crazy disciplines are in one building and all of these crazy souls are, are in one building, that's what creates the gravity. You know, and all, you know, Maria Popova and all the fucking amazing, talented, magical souls that are coming and going inside of this like vessel. The building is nothing. It's a fucking bunch of bricks. It's bullshit without those people. We're going to come back to Maria because there's a question I want to ask you that, that she actually suggested. I don't think she would mind me saying that. But first, we're, we're going to get to that. But first, I want to try to connect some dots and flesh out some of your journey. So you mentioned early in this conversation, you're hustling, you're giving away art for free. You're like, a thousand, forget a thousand, 500. No, no to 500. <laughs> okay, take it for free. You, know, you get from that point, and in passing, you mentioned something that I think is worth noting, and that is collectors, or I'm not sure what you would call them, patrons, customers buying artwork in many cases for hundreds of thousands of dollars a piece. What were some of the the decisions or the influences that helped you to go from where you were to where you are in terms of commercial viability, right? Because it's it seems like, you know, you've used the word untenable a few times in this conversation, but you got to a point where it was very tenable. Like if you wanted to make really good art and sell it for what for a lot of artists would just be a tremendous, unthinkable sum of money, you can. What were some of the things that happened or that you did to get from where you were to where you are? I, I think it's accumulative. I think it's 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 so many, many little things. Because you know, I remember when I first sold a picture or whatever for, you know, a thousand or five thousand or ten thousand or maybe even twenty-five thousand, and I was like, holy fuck, I just got twenty-five thousand dollars. We're going to Sizzler, motherfucker. This shit is crazy. Like I can't <laughs> believe how lucky I am. I just made some shit and people paid me for it. Um that being said, you know, that it's like relative. Now I sell something for $25,000 and it doesn't even move the needle because I have a big, big studio and operation and crazy projects I'm working on. But I would say it happened over, you know, 25 years, a little bit at a time. And at the end of the day, I think it's the work. You know, I try to ask myself three questions like, can I live with it? Will I go to sleep next to it each night? You're talking about a piece of work, a project. A work of art, yeah. Like, can I just live with it? Can my kids live with it? Now, I don't have any yet, but if I did. And how will I feel about it in 100 years? Like, will it still make sense to me in a system of objects or in a system of ideas? And so I honestly think that the work just, 
the, the work is the work. Like if you tear away all the writing about the work and all the bullshit or all of it, and you just literally are left with the thing, will that tell a story? And will that move someone to maybe change their aperture or the way they see the world? It happens over just a very, very, very long time. You learn from each thing you do. It's like it's the way, like, what is it called? LIDAR works, right? With cars, right? Like it's learning. It's like, or an AI is learning. You're, that's how art really works, right? You just keep learning. Now, for a lot of people, the majority of artists, so they never get to maybe these uh, phase shifts where even in 20 years, 30 years, they're able to command attention that I guess then translates into, and I'm not going to obsess on these prices. I'm just using it as a proxy for the work that you've done and decisions. So I, I do want to ask, and I'm going to ask about the psychogeographies or psychogeographic sketches in a second, because I want you to describe them for people. Actually, let's just, let's just start there. And then, then I'll go to the next question. But could you describe, because they are unlike anything I have ever seen anywhere. I mean, they are, there's nothing that I can think of that is remotely similar. And you might have some type of reference, but I don't. Can you describe what these, as one example of the type of work that you do, what do these look like? If somebody were to walk into your studio and behold these things, what do they look like? Well, we're talking specifically about the psychogeographies. Yeah. I, they are, they're meant to be this installation that's taking me, I don't know how long until I finish it, 10 or 15 years of about 120 humans that are kind of like, if you think about the terracotta warriors, they're, they're meant to be this group of together. And they're kind of like, a, I kind of think of them as consciousness or something or of, of a, yeah, if you're taking, if I took your brain and smashed it together and made a map of everything inside of it that you could read through images, that's what they are. So, you know, often within a psychogeography, you'll have tens of thousands of images that I'm finding from a hundred years worth of books and magazines mixed in with paintings and drawings on the layers of glass. So, so describe the glass for a second, just so people can paint a mental picture based on my recollection and please correct me if i'm wrong i'm just going to use a an analogy here for anyone who's a star wars nerd or at least saw return of the jedi as an example han solo frozen if you were to take something like that stand it up so that han solo is standing on his feet per se but suspended in the amber and then slice that into and convert it into multiple layers of glass and take like the culture and consciousness of Han Solo and sort of use it to replace the imprint of his body with the constituent parts of that. I know this might sound strange, but that's kind of the visual in my mind as I recall it. But could you maybe just describe the form factor and how much it weighs, what the size is like? Sure. I mean, one, one way I try to describe it, like if I'm trying to describe it to a young person is I just make window sandwiches. I just take a piece of glass <laughs> Right, I just take like a window, piece of glass, and I draw on it, and I cut up my homework, let's say, or I cut up an encyclopedia, and I glue little pieces, uh, a little human with the head of an elephant, you know, next to an amethyst crystal, next to like a piece of uh, architecture, 
you know, from Bauhaus, whatever. I'm just like rambling. But my point is I'm cutting up little pieces of paper and drawings and I'm putting them on the layer of glass. And then I add another piece of glass on top and I do that again, but with in relationship to what I did before. And then again and again and again. And the next thing you know, you have 30 windows on top of each other and all the drawings, mark making, and all of the pieces of paper and collage on every single layer in concert together make up a psychogeography or tell a story. And then I glue them together with a glue that has the same refractive index. And and the psychogeographies that you're discussing or we're discussing are about 3,000 pounds uh, each. So, and and I've made works that are up to like modulated in 24,000 pounds or whatnot. <laughs> and it's, as you would expect, coming out of your brain and hands and work, it's trippy when you look at these because the experience changes depending on where you are situated and looking at the piece of art, right? I mean, if you're standing on the sides, it's quite a different experience. I mean, it's almost a vanishing act compared to looking at it from other perspectives. And then there is the looking at it from 20 feet away where you think it's quite one thing or resembles a melting person or any number of different, uh, the forest or stair steps within a human body. And then you get really close and you have the micro versus the macro experience, which is yet again, something completely different, at least to the beholder. How did that start? How did the psychogeography start? Well, I mean, I guess I should just go backwards a little bit with the work. I don't know. You mean like, how did I start making work in layers or just the psychs? Uh, whichever one you would like to tackle. I don't mean to fixate on this as the exclusive representation of your work. I know you've done a huge, wide spectrum of work. I just think it's helpful since we're having a conversation with an artist for the listeners who are just hearing this to kind of paint a picture of of one example. So it could be layered art. Uh, if that precedes well, the psychogeographies, then let's go with which, whichever you like. Oh yeah, well, yeah, and then we should. Uh, I mean, my the newest one you haven't seen. I don't know if you saw the politics of eternity finished. That's a cool one. But I mean, really, all this was experimentation, accident, and 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 you know, I was making collages. I always loved collage. I always loved again, kind of what we were talking about. How do you not have system overload? Maybe one of the ways I deal with the system overload is I love uh, amalgamations and I love bringing things together. And Pioneer Works is that with people, right? But with artwork, you know, I used to or still love to make paintings and collages and drawings and things out of rocks. I'm constantly putting disparate things together and very much interested in the relationships between those pieces. And I was making a collage many years ago uh, out of pages of a dictionary that I was ripping up. And Agnes Martin, like who's an artist, grid of dictionary pages. And I started pouring resin on the thing and I saw an optical quality and uh, B got stuck and poured more resin. And then I decided to make these sort of boxes of resin, Joseph Cornell inspired. I love Joseph Cornell, like boxes with objects. And I started drawing in layers of resin. And then I took the, uh, I saw something that looked almost biological and I took the objects out and I started just making these like dendrite drawings, almost invented specimens. And I got obsessed. And I did that for some time and created uh, a lots of, botanical looking drawings and layers of resin. And eventually I tried drawing a human in the layers of resin and I was starting to get shows and I couldn't 
the resin was going to kill me, so I switched over to glass. The resin was going to kill you just because it's, is it toxic? I don't know anything about resin. Yeah, it's toxic, and I was scaling the work, and I was in masks all the time, and it wasn't a fun way to work, but I was actually developing a language that I was really connecting to. And so I switched over to the layers of glass, and that allowed me to change my mind and edit and go back and forth, because with the resin, I could only go backwards. I could never change my mind. So it was really a series of accidents. And uh, and the psychogeography is really, you know, I'm not even one, I don't think that really connects so much to figurative art. So it's weird that I've spent a decade on a project like that. Um, But at the end of the day, I'm just trying, I feel like I'm trying to make maps of consciousness. I'm trying to make things that like a fucking meteor hits the earth. And, you know, maybe one of the things that's left on, you know, you dig it out of the dirt, this 3,000 pound glass block, and it could really almost like a microscope slide. Like the DNA of our species can be told through images and through media that's been found and trapped and preserved. And so, like frozen movies, they tell stories through collections of ideas. I dig it. I dig it. Uh, you must have, because y- you are a very good teacher and explainer of things, and you mentioned earlier the window sandwiches and speaking to younger people. What do you think are some of the common mistakes that aspiring artists make? Right. Let's just assume they have some talent of some type and they have some passion. Let's, let's assume those two things just to try to constrain it. What are some of the mistakes that, that you see aspiring artists or up-and-coming artists making? Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe too much looking at what the people around them are doing opposed to finding their voice through their experience and through their lens of life. And I think that might happen in art schools and or getting too obsessed with one period in art history that moves them and then sort of trying to emulate or build off of it too much opposed to again, finding out what is in the bottom of their brains. Um, that might be one thing. Um, I mean, something also, I mean, and also just knowing that it's not a job. It's like, if, if you think you can stop doing it to do something else, maybe stop. Like there's nothing else you can do. Never fucking giving up, basically, just like, and always pushing and pushing and trying and not giving a fuck about what comes out at the other end, really, but more about learning from the process of making the thing. How much of that is dependent on being willing or even embracing of living a very simple life? Right, because I would imagine there there are some people out there who would say, "I'd love to do that," but at the end of the day, I gotta pay my rent. I gotta have X, Y, and Z shoes. I can, you know, I can't live on ramen every day, etc. Is that a piece of it, or am, am I just? No, yeah, yeah, of course, you gotta be able to die for it. <laughs> Quite literally, in a way, you gotta just be like, "This is the thing," you know. And I've done that with the works. I mean, the last work I finished, "The Politics of Eternity," which is only the third large work narrative work, you know, it took me a couple of years and I almost bankrupted my studio to make it. And I do that constantly. I'm like, I don't give a fuck about anything but making the thing. (laughs) What would happen if it bankrupted your studio? 
what would you, how would you feel and what would you do? Would it just be destiny and then you'd figure, become a short order yeah, cook or what would, what would happen? I'd probably go like, I don't know, become like, yeah, go live in a fucking tropic somewhere and live off of coconuts. <laughs> Seriously, I'm always like, you know, if it were anyone else, I'd be like, ha ha ha. I mean, I am laughing, but I'm laughing in part because I can totally fucking imagine it. (laughs) Yeah, I'd be so content. In fact, that that life calls me constantly. But I try to do these really like the new piece, The Politics of Eternity was really cool. It's got like a whole narrative where I'm trying to depict the past and the future simultaneously. And in the future, there is uh, astronauts inhabiting the world, if you will. In the past, where there would be astronauts, there's animal-headed humans, if that makes sense to you. And everything is mirrored. So in the future, they're building a rocket on the top of a mountain. And in the same place in the past, they're building a totemic antenna to the gods. So everything is mirrored. You know, the tunnels in the future are straight and modern and in the past organic. And in the future, there's the same tree that's growing in the future is growing in the same place in the past. Or where there's a particle accelerator in the future, there's a cave of minerals in the past. Or where there's like a group Sisyphus moment in the past underneath the ocean where the animal-headed humans are pushing a boulder to capture a sea monster in a cave, that same moment's happening in the same place underneath the ocean in the future, but it's astronauts pushing a machine to capture data that's coming out of the sea. And where the moon is in the future, there's the sun in the past, and you've got Mars right in the middle, splitting the worlds. And the future and the past are also depicted by waterfalls falling in to the present simultaneously, where there's... uh, you know, these weird uh, narratives on on the sea. And there's a super tanker sinking, which is connected to another project. And there's there's uh, animals coming out of the super tanker as an al- allegory to the ark. So I just want to pause for a second and tell people, go to DustinYellen.com or at DustinYellen on Instagram, and this will make a lot more sense. <laughs> Not that it doesn't make sense, but they might think to themselves, holy shit, this guy's done a lot of acid, which is also true. But it's a lot easier to absorb visually in a sense, although I like the description. I want to harken back to something you said, which was you have to be willing to die for it. And you talked about death for a moment. And that actually relates to the question that uh, Maria Popova, for people who don't know who that is, she's the most prolific writer imaginable, very talented, brainpickings.org. She suggested that I perhaps explore the death of your mentor or one of your mentors. I don't have context for this question, so please tell me if I'm barking up the wrong tree. But does that question bring anything to the surface for you? It seemed like this was something worth plumbing the depths of a bit. Yeah, well, I mean, mean, I'm an old man now. I've lost a lot of people. But when I was young, young, uh, 25, I lost my best friend, and who was like my mentor and teacher, was a teacher. And uh, I think that completely affected me for the rest of my life. Um, and, and since then, I've lost a lot of people, including one of my mentors who's, who was older than me. And I think when I was young, I was always obsessed with death. And I think I probably still am. 
because I think of, you know, I don't know how time works. I think it maybe is that the past and the present and the future exist simultaneously and somehow you can access it. And I'm not sure that when the body dies or, or we, st- we die here, that it's all gone. I'm very much an optimist and think that maybe there's some semblance of it that we can still tap into because energy cannot be destroyed. I don't know how it works. I definitely have been obsessed with it always and, and still am. And, and again, back to that idea of over system overload. Well, if I think about right now, how many summers left do I have? You know, call it 50 for the sake of the conversation. You too. You, you and I have, let's say, 50 summers left. Right. Well, fuck, 50 summers is like lunch. For sure. <laughs> you know, it's so fast. It's so quick and finite. And, and so I don't know if that affects my relationship to death, even though I think it might be infinite and that somehow, I, I don't know how it really works. But, but yeah, death has really informed maybe losing you know someone the closest person to me at such a young age i think really it uh changed the way i see the world completely does that obsessing over death and i'm asking as someone who really in the last few months has has been thinking about death almost constantly i'm curious to know what form that obsession has taken in other words is it heavy and foreboding does it lead to depressive feeling? Is it just a kind of snap of the fingers and kick in the ass like, hey, homie, let's get moving. You don't have that much time, so let's use this as best we can. What is the sort of emotional tenor of that obsessing over death? I think it's probably the latter is is like, look, the rest of your life is fucking almost over. (laughs) So you better get into it now. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like this is it. There is nothing else but to this fucking minute, this hour. And I have a hard time, I think, thinking about forever or the, like, for the rest of my life. And, and I think there's, it's posited some, of, some challenges probably in like maybe why I haven't started a family yet or maybe I need to start a family right away or making decisions in interpersonal relationships, I think. It's challenged me because I'm like, this is it. Like, Right now, I could literally be gone in 12 hours. It's completely plausible. And therefore, I want to open up the aperture. And maybe that's through meditation, or maybe that's just through listening and being quiet. But I want to open up the aperture as much as possible all of the time and feel as much as possible all of the time. Because the way that I feel right now may be gone or completely change. So... If we're looking at living your best life, I sort of drop this in the beginning. This is going to seem like a very strange segue, but from the sort of sublime to the maybe ridiculous, how did you end up dancing in a Jay-Z video? Is that even a real thing? (laughs) I literally know. I mean, I did. It's true that I used to break dance on Venice Boardwalk, like when we were living there for a heartbeat and I would fucking... Yeah, I remember like moving up, starting on cardboard, and then like people would give me like fifteen bucks over the few hours, and then like I moved up to linoleum, which I thought was cool. <laughs> I do not know how the Jay Z video happened. I mean, he's cool. I'd like to actually have a coffee with him at some point. So, of- well, hold Our- on. So, do you literally just not have a recollection of how you got filmed, or you- <laughs> like how does that happen? I actually don't know. Yeah, I got a phone call. They're like, show up at this place. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. <laughs> 
Oh God, I feel like there's so many, so many directions we could take that. Let me ask you this. This is um, a question that is sometimes a dead end. It's not always a great question, but I'll try it. And and it is, if you could put anything on a gigantic billboard, metaphorically speaking, right, to get a, a message, an image, a question, a word, whatever, out to billions of people, what might it be? You mean an image or a word or something could, on could a billboard? Be, could be anything that you want to convey to billions of people. Anything at all. Non-commercial, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I would just want to try to get everybody to love each other. Like get everyone to be a, a little bit more tolerant, a little bit more open, a little, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald said that a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in the mind simultaneously and still retain the ability to function. So that if we could just somehow accept our differences as the, the great glue that creates the complexity and miracle of what we experience. So, I mean, that would be the thing I would try to somehow portray is to say that, look, all of us, every single one of us is experiencing the same thing differently. And we're all made of the same stuff. And we're all sharing the same stuff. So why on earth are we, you know, deploying capital at such a scale to defense opposed to education or healthcare? Why are why, you know, why is our why is the world look the way it does when really it could be so so incredibly dreamy if we all just decided together to do that? You mentioned earlier the tanker and you said that connects to another project and I remember you sharing a couple of slides, I think it was on a laptop, related to this. But can you describe this other tanker project and just tell people what the vision and or the status is of this project? Lest they think it's all about Windows sandwiches, although that I love, 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 love those uh, that work. What is the other tanker project? A super tanker moves fossil fuels around, and I've been obsessed with this thing for years. And now it's got a little bit of movement, but just just this idea of how do you how how do you bring awareness to getting away from fossil fuels? And I'm working on a project called the Bridge because it's a bridge from the past to the future of how we use and think about energy. Where I'm taking a super tanker, which is a boat that moves oil around. And it started to be at like 1,200 feet. It's not as big anymore, but it'll still be the largest lift. I think in history, where we're taking a super tanker and literally in one moment we're pulling it up and putting it on its nose, basically like almost like a like a, a monument to the end of fossil fuels, and we're coating it so that safely, let's say a million or a million and a half visitors can go take elevators through the boat up to the top of it and then get to an observation deck, which is made of the bridge, which was where you used to control the ship from, hence the name the bridge also double name. And uh, through the experience of visiting this monument, you'll learn about uh, the history of energy and potentially the future of how we can responsibly shepherd in uh, a cleaner, safer way to power the earth. So yeah, so that's the bridge. I'm basically just putting a super tanker on its nose. Um, again, love, that's what probably, you know, I love Fitzgerald pulling a boat over a mountain. I'm, I'm now trying to take a boat the size of a building and put it on its nose. So it's like a Statue of Liberty with the liberty being freedom from fossil fuels, or at least that's the... It's twice the size of the Statue of Liberty. And yes, it's a, it's a monument to the end of fossil fuels. It's like a monument to say, look, we can power the earth with water and with 
sun and with you know various other technologies if we can if we can scale them where might the bridge be or i can't say okay. i can't say all right we'll keep it under wraps for now i'm using the royal we since i have no fucking idea but tbd it's a really cool project i'm working with you know brk Ingalls, who's an amazing architect and i'm working with arab engineering and i'm working with all these cool people who are helping me to realize this dream that's incredible. Just a few more things. And uh, this has been so much fun. So I'm looking at a quote from thecreativeindependent.com. And the paragraph is attributed to you, I believe. And here's how it reads. But I try to wake up every day with this mantra or idea that I've done nothing. You know, I've accomplished nothing. I've done nothing. And the page is white. Therefore, um, therefore, in my words, what's possible? What can be invented now? Is that something that you constantly remind yourself of? Is that still the case? Or is, is that intermittent? How do you think about the I've done nothing blank slate? Is that accurate? Absolutely. I feel that every day because it's true. I mean, until we've come to a place where there's more harmony and more equality uh, and more justice and more thoughtfulness uh, on our planet that we share. I certainly feel like I've done nothing. Hmm. I mean, I mean, because if anything is possible, then think about how much we can do together. Then what I've done in the past, and if the past is no longer now, then therefore I've done nothing. So I, I, I kind of feel that way all the time. Do you find that intimidating, overwhelming, or invigorating or something else? Right? Because I can imagine some people would be so crushed under the formidable nature of that type of what they might view as a burden or obligation that they just would be paralyzed. No, I, 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 I mean, I guess I probably have semblances of all of those feelings, but if anything, I feel the wonder and possibility of what we can make as a species together or as an individual that it's all possible, right? That it's like if I look at a white piece of paper and then four hours later there's a drawing there, there was nothing and now there's something. And this idea between nothing and something is really interesting because if you look at cities and, and technologies and all of it, there was nothing. And then there was something. And so we really do have that capacity to create absolutely anything all of the time. Dustin, I think that is a great place for me to stop my inquisition of questions. Uh, so fun to reconnect. People can find you on Instagram at Dustin Yellen, last name Y-E-L-L-I-N, DustinYellen.com, PioneerWorks.org. I highly recommend people check out all of those. And of course, we'll link to everything we've talked about, the movies, the books, everything else in the show notes for people. Is there anything else that you'd like to say before we close up shop on this first conversation on the podcast? Well, I wouldn't even know where to, I mean, read some poetry Think of this whole thing as a poem, you know, realize that, that all of our, you know, I guess if, if people could just fucking come together and the injustices and the incomprehensible horrors that this species uh, has created with some of also the great things on the planet 
in the past, like let the past, let us learn from it, but know that going forward, we really, if we choose to, can build the world that everyone wants to live in together, uh, you know, in a way that is equal and just. And we can all sort of support and love each other to keep fucking inventing the dream. I like that. It's inventing the dream. It's not finding the dream, right? Because you can each day, like you said, choose to create something from nothing. And uh, it certainly helps when you have the right people at the table, as you put it, uh, which I think is a beautiful metaphor. And to do that, you have to sometimes go out and invite those people, find those people, which is, I think, a common thread throughout a lot of the adventures that you've had. Oh, I'm the weird guy who in New York City, even going down the street, I'm saying hello to everybody. And they're like, looking at me like, what's wrong with him? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dustin, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a lot of fun for me and I've learned a lot. So I really do appreciate it. And for people listening, as always, I will link to all the resources and there'll be a transcript and all sorts of things, which you can find at tim.blog forward slash podcast. Just search for Dustin or Dustin Yellen or Yellen, Y-E-L-L-I-N. And until next time, be safe. Thanks for tuning in and uh, see what you can do at this empty table of life. And good luck. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? And would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. I've been using ExpressVPN since the summer of 2019. It is a super simple and reliable way to make sure that my data are secure and encrypted without slowing my internet speed. So for instance, I use public Wi-Fi all over the place. Might be at a Starbucks, it could be at a restaurant sitting outside somewhere to work. I travel all the time and ExpressVPN is an easy way to make sure that I am not getting my packets and data sniffed and (laughs) viewed by other people. All you need to do is download the ExpressVPN app on your computer or smartphone and then use the internet as you normally would. You click one button in the ExpressVPN app to secure 100% of your network data. Of the many VPN solutions out there, ExpressVPN is one of the best on the market. It's super easy, super simple, and I use it personally. In addition to protecting your data, you can also use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. So you can unlock 
content. This is actually a very, very good use case and uh, super helpful. ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries. So just think about all the Netflix libraries that you can go through. If you love anime, use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix, for instance, and be spirited away. One of my favorite movies, by the way, spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service, Hulu, BBC, iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD with no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all of your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and so on, so you can watch what you want on the go or on a big screen wherever you happen to be. So consider protecting yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tim and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Tim. One more time, check out expressvpn.com slash Tim to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Zero, Z-E-R-O, the world's most popular fasting app. Long-term listeners will know that I take fasting very seriously. I've studied it. I've practiced it. I do three-day fasts. I do seven to 10-day fasts every year, and I take it super seriously. The science, I think, is in. There is increasingly more and more literature pointing out the many benefits of doing even short periods of fasting. And now Zero is helping millions of users around the world unlock healthier, longer lives by harnessing the power of fasting. It's been downloaded millions of times, like I mentioned, 4.9 out of 5 stars on the Apple App Store as an example with more than 200,000 ratings, probably more than 300,000 ratings at this point. And up to this point in time for me, for years when I've had questions, for instance, do artificial sweeteners count? Can I consume those even though perhaps they might spike insulin levels a little bit? What about heavy cream in coffee? If I remain ketogenic and I'm not adding any glucose to my diet, so to speak, is that okay? What about the difference between, say, a 16-hour fast versus 72-hour versus seven-day? What do we actually know? How much of this is just old wives' tales versus real science that we can point to? I would always call or text or email Dr. Peter Atia. Peter Atia, my friend, he's been on the podcast many times, and he is now Zero's chief medical officer. So he has an entire library of Q&As and questions and advice, all the kind of stuff that I couldn't give anyone else access to, people now have access to, which is incredible. So Kevin Rose, my buddy, created this app initially in 2016, and it's turned into an incredible community and an incredible collection of how-to and tracking capabilities. So whether you've been fasting for years or just getting started, Zero equips you with exclusive videos from people like Peter Atia, personalized fasting plans, and advanced health data to keep you on track. Listeners of this podcast, that's you guys, can get 30% off a one-year Zero Plus subscription, which gets you all sorts of goodies. So I would highly recommend checking it out. Get a full year's access to content and fasting plans developed by the medical experts I trust, like Dr. Peter Tia, and save $20. Just visit zerofasting.com slash Tim to get your exclusive discount. That's zerofasting.com slash Tim, and your discount will be automatically applied one last time, zerofasting.com slash Tim. Thank you.